Hello and welcome to the May 24th edition of the Evolution Medicine Podcast. Today, I, your host, Joe Alcock, will talk to you a little bit about a recent paper uh, published in February of this year, 2017, in the New England Journal of Medicine. And the paper is Tight Glycemic Control in Critically Ill Children. I have written a blog entry about this entitled Too Sweet or Just Right. And of course, the sweetness has to do with the sugar in the blood. And the question is, what should we do about it? Should we try to normalize the high blood sugar? Should we leave it alone? Should we help things along and actually add more blood sugar? These are, these are some questions that come down the pike in the practice of clinical medicine, and especially in critical care medicine, where the default position is that we try to make things normal again. And this view I've covered in previous podcasts, previous blog entries, and is the subject of a workshop that uh, some colleagues and I did in Berlin at the Wissenschaftskolleg zu Berlin uh, when we talked about the idea of what is normal in medicine. So I have my own ideas about this, and one of them is that we should probably not fetishize the idea of normality. And in fact, many of our impulses to try to fix things and make everything back into the normal range comes from a misguided view of homeostasis, and that is that uh, the body tries to defend uh, a strictly defined set of parameters, and when we find them uh, to be outside those parameters, which we commonly think of uh, as being the normal range, we try to fix them. So what do we do? We give people fluids, we give people blood pressure medications, we give people insulin when it comes to high blood sugar. So that's going to be the topic of this episode. Should we just let people be sweet when they are critically ill, or should we try to reduce the sweetness with, with insulin? So this idea of trying to normalize blood sugars is, is a powerful one, and it's going to be, despite the paper result that I'm going to talk about today, and just spoiler alert, um, they did not find that trying to normalize blood sugars in these uh, critically ill kids worked, so we're going to discuss that. But the idea that having high blood sugar is bad for you is a powerful one, and there is a big literature that has defined you know, high blood sugars as being pathological, as being part of uh, sickness and really being part of the problem. So here again, here's something that our bodies do uh, kind of without any help from any kind of outside organisms. Our bodies actually uh, change the homeostatic set point of the uh, blood sugar, and it actually defends a higher blood sugar than it would under ordinary circumstances when we're sick and when we're under stress. And uh, we think of this as being bad because diabetics certainly get infections and are sicker than the rest of the population and having a high blood sugar can be a marker for illness and so we feel better when people's blood sugars are, are normalized. I think this is a misguided idea. Uh, the time has come to reassess this uh, logic which is I would say an illogic and just to set the stage for you, let's get into uh, this paper, Tight Glycemic uh, Control in Critically Ill Children. So the primary author is Agus, and the study investigators, there's a variety of them. They come from the Half Pint Study Investigators and the Polisi Network, and you can go to the New England Journal website and uh, to get more information about who those people are. And just from the abstract, they argue that 
tight glycemic control um, has not been shown to been to be a good idea. So this is using lots of insulin in critically ill patients to try to make their blood sugars more normal. It, does, it didn't work famously in critically ill adults. So what they're referring to here is something called the NICE sugar paper. And this is a study that now is a little dated. It dates to 2009. The NICE sugar investigators did a multi-center randomized controlled trial. They enrolled 6,000 critically ill adults and they randomized half of them, 3,000, to tight glycemic control. And that was trying to make their blood sugars more normal uh, using insulin, or what, we, what they called in the paper an intensive insulin treatment arm. Uh, the other 3,000, they let their blood sugars uh, be a little bit higher. They still received insulin, but they, the targets uh, were uh, more permissive, and uh, they let these patients ride with a slightly higher blood sugar. And they had proposed, based on some even earlier literature, that giving lots of insulin and trying to normalize the blood sugar was going to make these patients better. But what they found, in fact, was unexpected. Mortality, so death, which is the final uh, and perhaps best outcome measure of uh, randomized controlled trials in critical illness. And the mortality was higher in the intensive insulin treatment arm. So it was 27.5% in the intensive insulin group, the normalizing group, and it was a little bit lower than that, 24.9% in the permissive hyperglycemia or the lower insulin intensity group. So that was a unexpected result, shall we say. And it led to a lot of consternation in the medical literature. And I think that, I think that most critical care physicians would agree with me when I say that people tended to explain away these results. And they said, well, really the problem isn't the normalizing of blood sugar. The problem was really that people overshot with the insulin and they gave too much insulin and the blood sugars went too low. As a result of that, patients suffered the ill consequences of hypoglycemia, which is a pretty morbid and dangerous condition, particularly when you're already very, very sick. So they did show that the patients in the intensive insulin treatment arm had more episodes of a dangerously low blood blood sugar, that is hypoglycemia, and those are the patients that seem to do the worst. So people explain this away and said, well, maybe we really ought to be normalizing blood sugar, but we just need to be a little more careful about avoiding hypoglycemia. So that's a way of sort of post hoc analysis to explain away your results, things that you weren't anticipating. Uh, and many editorials and, and, and subsequent writers to this really blamed uh, the results of the nice sugar study, not on the underlying idea of trying to normalize the blood sugar, but on the bad consequences of the hypoglycemia. So that was that. And again, this is 2009. That's a long time ago. Uh, subsequent research has shown that the NICE sugar study did not have the kind of massive upheaval of a previously uh, closely held belief or a paradigm in terms of using insulin to normalize blood sugars and the idea that high blood sugar being is bad, that that uh, didn't seem to be the case. Um, so, in fact, we've uh, we've covered that that topic also uh, on the blog. In that it's, it's been studied, you know, current attitudes or at least recent attitudes toward normalizing blood sugar and the impact of the Nice Sugar study didn't have the kind of impact that it has. And that that I think has to do with uh, again um, a fetish, fetishization of normal, a over reliance on a simplistic view of homeostasis. And the very simple idea that if something is outside the normal range, that it should be 
fixed or normalized. Again, these are powerful ideas. I think if we were just to do a little survey of medical students, residents, and attendings, that that idea would be the most powerful uh, one that holds sway. So with that in mind, um, the current investigators uh, decided to study kids. And you know, since the NICE sugar study came out, there was one previous study that looked at kids with who had undergone cardiac surgery. And like the NICE sugar study, this very specific surgical population of pediatrics, they didn't do any better if they were uh, given the intensive insulin treatment. In fact, um, some of them did worse. But still, no one had studied a kind of a similar population of sort of, of garden variety, critically ill uh, patients that happened to be pediatric using a similar design to the NICE sugar study. So here's what they did. They enrolled, as it turns out, uh, 713 critically ill children. And I'll stop right there. So 713. So this is not 6,000. This is 713. And I'd have to go back and find out what the original target was. But this study was stopped early. So they didn't actually enroll their overall target. It was stopped early because even with this sample of 713, there was enough of a signal that, in fact, the intensive insulin treatment was not going to make the kids better and it might actually make them worse. But here we go. So they did enroll 713 critically ill children. They randomly assigned them to either a lower target blood sugar group. That means more insulin. So that's, I call this doing more of something. And the other group, the other treatment arm was a higher target group. So this means they were, they permitted the patients to ride with slightly higher blood sugars. They received less insulin. We'll call this doing more nothing. The main outcome, outcome measure was days outside of the ICU. So uh, discharge from the intensive care unit, uh, even home, um, time not in the ICU up till day 28, which is kind of a weird thing because really what they're looking at is how many, how many days they actually were in the ICU. But uh, the, the, this outcome, we'll just say, was similar in both groups. They didn't find a difference in, in their sample of 713 kids. And when they looked at the hard outcome of death, mortality was also similar. So no big changes there. But as I mentioned, this study was stopped early because they'd done an interim analysis. And they do this to figure out if there's going to be some harms or things that were unanticipated. And the interim analysis determined that if they went and completed the trial with their originally, original target of enrollment, that in fact, the likelihood that they would see benefit from giving more insulin and normalizing blood sugars wasn't going to happen. And in fact, they found a pretty good signal that there was going to be a high risk of harm. What is this risk of harm? Well, they found it in their 713 critically ill children. The ones who got more insulin that were more normal and less abnormal had a higher rate of infection. These are healthcare-associated infections like line infections or ventilator, pneumonias. And they got, uh, of the children who were randomized to the high-intensity group, so more insulin, 12 of them got a one of these serious infections versus four uh, where they had the less intensive insulin treatment group. So that was, a, that was a significant result, even with a relatively small sample size. And they found that uh, with regard to that severe hypoglycemia, which was the outcome that plagued the previous night's sugar study, that severe hypoglycemia was also higher, not surprisingly, in the patients who got more insulin that were in the intensive treatment group. So there you have it. This study where they tried to, to mimic a design similar to the nice sugar study, but they did it in kids. They found that one, it didn't make patients 
be more likely to be discharged from the intensive care unit if they got more insulin and were more normal with regard to blood sugar. It didn't make them survive better, so those were null results, and it gave them higher risk or higher rate of infection and more likelihood of having severe hypoglycemia. So what are we doing? Why are we, why are we targeting patients or children with these intensive insulin therapies? I don't have data on this, but I could just about guarantee that this message is not sunk into to the overall medical community yet. It hasn't been discussed in a thorough fashion. And I, I imagine that right now, somewhere, perhaps even in my own hospital, but certainly in my city, there is a child getting what would be described as an intensive insulin treatment to treat hyperglycemia or this quote-unquote abnormally high blood sugar. So what, what, do we, what do we make of the evidence in totality now? Here we have a very, very large trial in adults that showed, not only didn't show benefit from normalizing blood sugar, but actually showed harm in the, what we think of as being the gold standard of a trial, and that is a randomized controlled trial. A large one, a multi-center involving 6,000 patients. There is now in the pediatric literature a surgical cohort, uh, a trial in which surgical post-surgical patients got either high insulin or low insulin. And again, the ones that were the, where the target was to try to normalize them uh, with a high insulin or intensive insulin therapy, they did no better. And here we have in this study, kids that really look like they did worse when it can't, comes to things that we care about, and that is infections um, and severe hypoglycemia. So normalization, not good. Normalization, bad. Insulin therapy, overall, when we give more of it, is bad. Giving less of it is better. Giving none of it, we don't actually have the data on that. So perhaps that's, that's, the, that's the next trial will be, let's just leave it completely alone. But because the overall idea that we have to do something is so powerful and we can't let these abnormal values go unchecked, that concept is so deeply ingrained in the medical community that really for many of these trials, the, the, the contrast has been between doing more and doing less, not between doing something and doing nothing. But in this trial, doing more of nothing actually did, so less intense therapy, did seem to make the children uh, have better outcomes. So we're done. We're done here. We're done with, we're done with, uh, with the pediatrics. No one is going to do a similar trial with a similar design to this one. Even though this, 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 this study didn't, didn't demonstrate harm, perhaps it would have had they, in terms of mortality, perhaps it would have shown increased mortality if they had a slightly higher uh, sample and it was perhaps underpowered to show that result. But at this point, there is an equipoise to do a similar study to this. Everything, all of the signal from these previous studies suggests that doing more treatment to make people quote unquote normal in the setting of critical illness is harmful. So doing more insulin actually makes people worse, doesn't make them better. Equipoise would suggest that the state of knowledge is uncertain and that either, either possibility has equal likelihood of being right. And that is what guides the ethical design of studies. You have to have equipoise, scientific uncertainty between the two possible treatments, especially when we're doing a, a patient trial involving children. So in kids, kids are a vulnerable population. They can't provide informed consent for themselves, so we rely on parents or other guardians. 
but kids can't really choose. So at this point, we're not gonna do another trial of, of intensive insulin treatment in children because the scientific uncertainty is essentially not there. It looks like doing it is probably harmful. And in fact, because of these ethical, ethical concerns and just scientific concerns, it would be wrong to do another similar study and actually put more kids at risk by giving them intensive insulin. So there you have it. So as I write in the, in the blog, there are two points, two take-home points that I think are worth pondering. So one is clinical and one is theoretical. So clinically, I would expect that very sick, critically ill children are not gonna get any more intensive insulin. As I mentioned, I don't think this is soaked in yet. There's gonna be a time of you know, translating these results to the bedside that will take some time. Having said that, there, the scientific uncertainty as far as I'm concerned is gone. And there does come a time when antiquated, erroneous ideas in medicine need to die. And that time is now when it comes to intensive insulin therapy. I'd say this is true for adults as well as children. So the second point is a reappraisal of what it means to be hyperglycemic. And our idea, our idea about that this is an abnormality that requires fixing. So I'm not the only one to argue that having high blood sugars when your body's under stress is good for you. There have been uh, a variety of, of previous um, authors that have argued uh, some similar things. And for, for instance, Paul Merrick and Ronaldo Bellamo wrote in Critical Care Journal in 2013 that stress hyperglycemia is an essential survival response. So that, that's their viewpoint. Of course, previous to that, there was another paper, uh, again, actually not even previous, and it was published afterwards, a review, that they called hyperglycemia a metabolic self-destruction in critically Ill, critically Ill patients. So this was by Hartle and Jausch uh, out of Munich, Germany, arguing the opposite. So recently people have been arguing about whether the stress hyperglycemia is a, is a self-destructive, body-going haywire, uh, physiology-gone-amuck kind of consequence. Uh, phenomenon, or if it is the consequence of an adaptation or something which is functional and beneficial, which I think is closer, if not uh, the truth. So th there you have it. So I think that evolutionary medicine, the, that area of scientific endeavor, can inform this debate. And one with the idea that certainly we have been sick in our evolutionary past and many of our ancestors certainly throughout humanity and even in pre-human evolution confronted things like serious trauma serious infection so it would be bizarre if we didn't have specific adaptations to cope with these challenges that would be somewhat different from how we cope with day-to-day -day life so if we just flip the idea on its head the idea that we would have survived. We're the survivors of lots and lots of our ancestors going back to an unbroken lineage of people who survived trauma and infection. The, the, the idea that, that that selective pressure would not have led to the evolution of specific adaptations to cope with these massively consequential and life-threatening stresses, again, that would be different than how we undertake um, our lives in the non-stressed state, that's, that's ludicrous. So it's, it's ridiculous to think that we have evolved in the absence of having specific adaptations for sepsis and trauma. So if we have adaptations for sepsis and trauma, what might they look like? And I think that we have to look at the common things that happen to everybody who are 
subjected to these massive infectious and traumatic stresses, and that is hyperglycemia. It's a universal. It happens to all of us. Anybody with a normal blood sugar who gets in a car accident or gets, uh, God forbid, a life-threatening infection, they are going to exhibit some degree of elevation of the blood sugar. This is probably adaptive. The fact that fixing it doesn't help is a clue that this is probably an adaptation, something which benefits us. So, again, if you, if you read the, the blog, I wrote that evolutionary medicine is useful as far as it leads to distinct and better outcomes than conventional non-evolutionary approaches in medicine. How does that apply to this particular study and this area of research? Well, in the case of normalizing high blood sugars in critical illness, I think it's possible that the authors of these papers didn't necessarily have to have an evolutionary point of view, although that is percolating in the background. People have discussed this idea of adaptation and function when it comes to stress hyperglycemia. But they didn't necessarily have to have an evolutionary point of view. What I would say is that despite now incontrovertible evidence that normalizing high blood sugars is bad for us, again, this is my editorializing, there are going to be people that will not accept that and are going to continue to do pretty aggressive treatments for high blood sugar. So there's, there's a knowledge translation component of this, which I think needs to be aggressively attacked. And we need to speed that process along. This is where evolutionary medicine can, can come along. People just won't accept that making people, you know, letting people be abnormal is good because of everything that they've learned in medical school and physiology. Well, evolutionary medicine can pro provide a counterpoint. And if they accept that there is a potential for a adaptive reaction norm or a, a functional response in the setting of uh, critical illness, if they can accept that and they understand that there's an evolutionary basis for this, perhaps, perhaps that could speed the knowledge translation and make the bench to bedside movement of knowledge in the direction of saving lives more efficient. So that's what I think also is that evolutionary medicine has a role here to play to spread the word, to provide a basis, a theoretical basis for why these findings make sense. And that may actually make people change their practice and that's going to save kids' lives. So I think I'll end there. So the evolutionary perspective will save the lives of kids by speeding the adoption of better, less aggressive treatments. Now strongly supported by the best quality evidence, as in this paper and previous ones, it's time to stop Kind of studying this unless we're going to study doing nothing as compared to doing less that might be the the, the future research that needs to happen but maybe we should just abandon um, this idea of trying to make things normal in critical illness or just be far more selective about it because of the the likelihood if not the inevitable outcome of evolution being that some of what we see is going to have to be adaptive and beneficial so with that we'll uh we'll call it quits and I'll check in with you next week.